Good evening. Let me have my welcome onto John's. My name is Craig, and I'm the minister in training here at the church. I've had a few questions from people over the last few weeks. Craig, you finished at ETS for the summer Edinburgh Theological Seminary. What are you doing with your time? One of the things I've been enjoying doing is going along to the Wednesday lunchtime Bible study through in the lower hall from 12.30. And in that study, we've been looking at a Bible overview God's big picture, seeing God's plant of God's people in God's place, in the presence of God, three Ps, nice and easy to remember, the presence of God under his rule and blessing. At the time, just before the book of Ezekiel was written, this plan was being unfolded through the nation of Israel. Their role was to show the world what it meant to know God, to follow God, to represent him to the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. God had made a covenant with them. He had saved them, saved by grace. They were his people. He had made them his own. He gave them a land. He ruled over them through his law and a king from the line of David. But rather than proclaiming the glory of God, they profaned it. We've been seeing how actually in the book of Ezekiel that they were so bad, even some of the nations thought it was detestable what they did. So after hundreds of years of God pleading with them, he wiped them out. Almost completely, but not quite, a small number was left, but they weren't in the land, the king, the temple, all of it was gone. We've seen God's way he did this was through the Babylonians. They came and they conquered. They took the people away to Babylon. And one of them was the man Ezekiel who wrote the book we've been studying. Through him, God has been speaking to a people who they now realize have absolutely nothing. Jerusalem has fallen. So what's going to happen? Did God make promises those years ago he couldn't keep? Will there ever truly be God's people in God's place in the presence of God with his rule and blessing? See, in this latter third of the book, from chapters 33 onwards, we've been seeing that God is going to bring about promises, bring them about. He's going to make a new covenant. Not because the old covenant he made with Israel failed on his part, God isn't changing from plan B, but rather that old covenant was there to help us understand and see the need for a new one, for the promises to be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the last two weeks, we've been beginning to see how these promises will be fulfilled. We can see how God will restore the promises he made and fulfill them in a way which is far, far more glorious than anything he's done before. If you weren't here the last two Sunday evenings, please do go onto the website, listen to those sermons afterwards. And tonight we come to a promise that carries this theme on, the promise of a glorious new life. We'll see that Ezekiel is taken from the banks of the Kibar Canal to a vision of dry bones. That picture we've seen every single week, we finally got to that passage What he finds isn't a happy kid's song. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. We all know it. 
brother, what he finds, it's bleak. It's gray. It's helplessness. It's hopeless despair. But it's followed by an explanation that includes a marvelous life-giving, hope-filled assurance. So let's look at our chapter this evening, our section. If you've got a church Bible, we're on page 868. Let me read for us our passage this evening, verses 1 to 14 of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds of breath and breathe into these slain, that that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for his help. A glorious new life. Thank you for the new life we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us, we ask, to uh, understand what your word says in this passage. To see how this wonderful promise is fulfilled and shall be fulfilled. May incline our hearts to your word, we ask, and to nothing else this evening. Open our eyes to see the wonderful truth contained within your word. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you, we ask, and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast covenant love. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, and for our joy in you. Amen. Think of a time you were completely 
helpless. Perhaps you received an unexpected phone call. Perhaps you go back to a time in a hospital ward, an ultrasound scan. Perhaps it's a time standing at a grave. I remember one occasion of helplessness very vividly. I remember a man who was my first year of university, and a man came in and interrupted our lecture, and he asked if one of my friends was there. They left, they went out into the corridor, and then came this blood-curdling scream from outside as their friend got told his dad had just died. And hearing him getting carried away, A few days later, false hope given from a false gospel. It was a truly hopeless time. See, hopeless events sober us, don't they? They leave an impression on us. And yet seemingly the most hopeless situation you have faced, whatever that is, and you will face, is nothing compared to the hopelessness of being alienated by God. Some of us perhaps might not realize that's the situation we're in this evening. And that is exactly what uh, Israel thought as well at this time. Let me paint a picture of Ezekiel's vision for us. Imagine you find yourself in a valley. Above you the stars shine cold and bright while the moon gently illuminates a soft uncertainty in front of you. It's broken by jagged hills around you. A thick fog lies low in the valley, and silence deafens your ears. You think you see something out of the corner of your eye, and something else on this side, and you are terrified to move in case you attract whatever there is out there. But soon the fog begins to fade and a cold wind blows through you and you find yourself surrounded, as far as the eye can see, by bones. There's bodies around you. They've been left for whatever reason, not buried. And the flesh is rotted. The birds have eaten what's left and the sun has baked what remains. Any movement from you bring an unmistakable sound of bone splintering. It'd be a truly terrifying scene, wouldn't it? Perhaps you don't know a scene similar to the one Ezekiel met himself with in verse 1. But notice the first two, God takes him on a tour around these bones, and with every step, another crunch. A man's skull, a woman's rib, a child's hand, The crunch of bones that are very dead and very dry, echoing throughout this valley. But whose bones are these? Our passage works a bit like some of Jesus' parables, where the stories at the beginning and the explanation at the end. Have a look at verse 11. These bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Now, why is the house of Israel depicted as these dry bones? Because although they are physically alive, spiritually they are very, very dead. They are people judged by God, cast off into exile. They are cut off. 
No longer are they God's people in God's land, in God's presence. No longer are they a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. And so they say they are cut off. Their bones are dried up. It's all Old Testament language for God's judgment. God's judgment which has fallen and it is entirely deserved. And the people are left without any hope. It truly is a hopeless situation. David Miller, a few minutes ago, read for us from Ephesians chapter 2. And the beginning of that passage paints a similar picture of hopelessness. Let me read for us the first three verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Spiritually dead, having no capacity, no inclination to turn to God, spiritually all of humanity are as helpless as dead, dry bones. Because God's judgment is upon us and it is entirely deserved. Without Christ, it is a hopeless situation. Look at the question which comes, though, in verse 3 of Ezekiel 37. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Well, what's the answer? Can dead, dry bones live? Answer, no. Of course they can't. They're dead. All they can do is be dead. There's no chance they can live. That is, unless the living God grants them life. And will he? Will he grant them life? What's Ezekiel's answer? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's a very wise answer he gives. He doesn't say no because by now he's learned that God can do incredible things that are completely unexpected. And yet he doesn't say yes. He doesn't presume it's going to happen. All he knows is that God could do it. God may do it. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. For many years, as most of you know, I used to play rugby. And when you start playing rugby, there is a soon you recognize, uh, sorry, a noise you recognize pretty soon through the, the grunts of the forwards, the shouts of the back waiting for the ball can come the noise of a snapping bone. And immediately, everybody stops. A noise even worse comes in verse 7. A noise even worse than uh, the tour he went on when he stood on snapping bones. Have a look at verse 7. Thousands of bones come cracking together. This word's rattling, verse 7, it's the same as an earthquake, a deafening sound, a quaking valley, a terrifying sight, as all these smashed bones come together, cracking together to snap and form skeletons. And then verse 8 comes a sight even more gruesome as these skeletons become dead corpses. Then verse 10, a man's finger twitches. A child stumbles, a woman stands to her feet. And soon before Ezekiel, this one's valley of death has become a green pasture of life. 
This is some story, isn't it, from Ezekiel? It's no wonder this is probably the most well-known passage, and for many people, the only passage they know. But often what's most memorable isn't what's most important. We've got a vivid picture here that God has painted for us in his words. But that isn't all that's happened in this section. It's really key we see how this has happened, how these bones have become life. Notice Ezekiel wasn't called to to construct the skeletons, to tie sinews onto bone. A few moments ago, those very sinews and flesh didn't even exist. Ezekiel was called to prophesy, to proclaim and apply the word of the Lord. And notice in verses 4 to 8, it's two stages. Look at the first prophecy in verses 4 to 8. Ezekiel was told to announce the word of the Lord. And as the word of God is spoken, as the word of God is breathed out, notice the work of God has done. Verse 7, the surround sound of bones coming together. Verse 8, sinews come and flesh covers these skeletons. The skeletons have become corpses. They're still dead. But now there's the possibility of life. Then comes the second prophecy, this time to the breath. And look what happens in verse 10. Ezekiel is surrounded by a great army. And here's the key to understanding the passage. When you read the Bible, it's helpful to notice repeating words. Words that help you get the point of the passage. Notice the word breath. Verse 5, 6, 8, 9, 10. Look at the word wind in verse 9 as well. Spirit in verses 1 and 14. It's all the same Hebrew word, the word ruach. And this word stands like the backbone of the passage, running right the way through it. And what speaking about isn't some sort of two-stage conversion. It's two inseparable events working together, both of them needed. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, together. This is how God is going to bring about the spiritual rebirth of his people. Look again at the explanation from verse 12. Let me read it for us. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. I think, what is God going to do? He has promised he's going to bring about spiritual recreation. How is he going to do that? Through his spirit accompanying his word. And why will he do it? Notice the repeating phrase we've seen week after week after week. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He's doing all of this for his glory. The vision begins with sheer desperation. The most hopeless situation we could ever imagine off the back of the fall of Jerusalem, the most hopeless time in Jewish history. But because of the word of God and the spirit of God, the text ends with hope-filled assurance. And we see the spirit-filled life. Just imagine you were a Jewish person hearing all of this. Think about the 600-mile walk back to Jerusalem after Cyrus's decree, allowing them to return 
Can you imagine discussing this prophecy? God's kept his promise. It's all going to happen. It's going to come true. And as they discussed it, I'm sure what came to mind was something similar to this. The story of Adam in Genesis. The Lord forming Adam, breathing his life into him. This prophecy is a prophecy of spiritual recreation, a new humanity. It's a passage of hope for the people, and boy, did they need hope. And when they, when they returned, they got home, they got there. It's a bit rubbish, though. They walked 600 miles, and they returned, and the walls smashed up, the temple's gone. They rebuild the altar and the temple and read Ezra and Nehemiah and there's some signs of spiritual rebirth. A flicker of what is told about in verse 12. But it's still not all hunky-dory. Those who remember the old temple weep because they build a new one and it's just a bit pathetic compared to Solomon's temple. The people rebuild the wall and yet there's still sin in their hearts. Severe persecution comes for hundreds of years. The Romans occupy the land. See, verses 12 to 14 isn't primarily about the Jewish people returning to the land. It is that. But it's a lot more than that. It's about Genesis 2 stuff, recreation, a new humanity filled with the Spirit of God. This is the hope that was meant to sustain them. They were not to put their hope in the city or land. They should have learned that by now. Instead, they were to put their hope in a future promise. I wonder, have you seen the classic film Shawshank Redemption before? It's a film set in a prison called Shawshank State Penitentiary. And for these men, it is a hopeless situation. One character in the film, a newer inmate, comes out of a week of solitary confinement and says that he survived because of one thing hope and Morgan Freeman's character an older gentleman leans forward and says hope is a dangerous thing hope can drive a man insane it is no use on the inside see if hope was simply wishful thinking then he'd be right if God had simply given us some some positive thinking some mindfulness then yet hope would have been a dangerous thing for the Israelites returning would have been dangerous for them, for them when things got hard and things weren't going well. But that's not biblical hope. God gave them true hope, a promise of something yet to be received. A promise given by the one who's always been faithful to his words. A promise given and a visual reminder of what he will do and what he first did. Breathing life into being as his word is spoken. And we're in the middle of this promise. We know in part what that looks like. We, we heard from that in Ephesians 2 earlier. See, when we follow Jesus, it isn't that we've adopted a new way of living. We've been brought from death to life by God. Sure hope because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about spiritually the most hopeless situation. Perhaps it's the workplace, the hospital ward, the media, the staff room, the school playground. Perhaps it's the family dinner table. 
Telling them about Jesus and expecting them to believe is like going to a graveyard and telling bones to live. See, often I think we can struggle with evangelism. And really the reason is because we don't realize just how difficult it is. Think, but Craig, you don't know my friends. You don't know my family. You're right, I don't. But telling somebody the gospel and expecting them to believe it is like telling dead, dry bones to live. We can't do it, can we? At least on our own. But there is hope, though, because the word of God and the spirit of God speak the word of God and pray the spirit may use it, that he may wield his sword and do his work. See, the proclamation of the gospel is never merely a human activity. Telling your friends may seem weak and foolish, and to the world it is. It feels like we're trying to bring dead people to life. But telling people about Jesus and asking God to use our weak words is the only way that brings life. It doesn't mean that, that we recant scripture, like it's some sort of spell. But as we say something about Jesus, we want to share the same Jesus we find in his words. When someone asks you tomorrow what you did at the weekend, or when that family member rings you up tonight as they do every Sunday evening and asks you what you've been up to, when you say you went to church, tell them what you heard and perhaps how it helped. We have no idea of the repercussions. It might just save their life. We pray and we proclaim because the Spirit's power to bring new life comes through words. This is why we tell people about Jesus. This is why we're starting an apprenticeship program to train preachers and teachers of God's words. This is why we're planting a church in Charleston to reach the lost for the glory of God and to his praise. We pray and we proclaim because the Spirit's power to bring new life comes through words. Just think how we begin to see this vision fulfilled in the New Testament. Think back to the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20. Now you remind us of the scene. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And he meets his disciples locked in the room. And he says to you, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this word, this word for breathe is used nowhere else in the Greek Bible. Except in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, breathed into him life, and the man became a living creature. What we see in John 20 is Jesus breathes new life into these men, and he's giving them his life, his spirit. He's making them truly human. And as these men went out to proclaim the gospel, God was going to do his work through his word as they proclaimed it. And that's exactly what we have written down exactly what God has used to save us. Because as Jesus says in John 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In Ephesians, Paul picks up on this in chapter 1. Let me read from verse 13. says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the truth. What is the truth? It's the apostles' testimony. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, 
to the praise of his glory. See, this is the promise that we have now from verse 14 of Ezekiel 37. The promise that as we hear the gospel, God gives life and he gives us his spirit. This recreation doesn't simply happen when we first believe. We aren't yet fully without sin. Imagine you could put on some sort of Ezekiel x-ray lenses. And you could see what Ezekiel could see in his vision. In this room, as God's spirit works with God's work, we would see sinews being formed, muscles growing, flesh continuing to form on us because we are still being renewed into the image of God. And this will happen all our days as we walk in step with the spirit. And how do we do that? Well, by listening to what he uses, the word of God. Going by in the minimum of Bibles, not the way to live if we want to walk in step with the Spirit. But notice in the text just how different this new life is. Look back and compare verses 2 to verse 14. From death to life. From broken to recreated. From deafness to hearing. From separation to intimacy. From bone to spirit. From judgment to under God to being with God. The life of the Christian is to look radically different to the non-Christian. Because it is different. The difference is as stark as dead, dry bones to eternal life. As Christians, we live in this new age. We live in the battle between the old and the new. It takes a miracle for us to follow Jesus. But thankfully, God has given us one by giving us his words and his spirit within us. I don't know if you're here and you aren't a Christian. If that's you, I'm really glad you are here. But I don't want you to mishear anything I've said. This life that is offered isn't a call to a different way of life. It isn't an addition to your, to your current life. It isn't an encouragement to new values. What is offered is death to life. We've read tonight that we are spiritually dead unable to help ourselves. This is the stark reality. We've also heard that from the word of God, there is hope because in Jesus, there's resurrection. This is what we are offered this evening. Certain hope in an uncertain world. Life in a world of death. Because tonight, we are offered Jesus. See, this passage is a passage of hope, of spiritual rebirth. But it's more than that though, isn't it? Because as the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, of all people we are most be pitied. Look at verse 13. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. It points us forward, doesn't it, to the most hopeless of situations, death itself. Verse 13 speaks about resurrection from the dead, the spirit dwelling within us. And this hope will not drive a man insane. Because if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Then we shall one day together on that final day be God's people in God's place in the recreation, in the fullness of God's presence, enjoying his rule and blessing. 
But without the word of the Lord, it will be a scene of utter hopelessness. But if we are brought alive by the living word of God, by his spirit, then as Jesus broke from the tomb, one day so will we. This is the hope-filled assurance of the spirit-filled life that sees us through even the hopelessness of death. And on that day, even more fully than now, we too shall know that indeed he is the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we long for that day. We know you now, but we long to know you even more in your fullness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for those who have taught us your word. Through whose words you saved us enabled us to believe, gave us your spirit, sealing us as yours, guaranteeing our resurrection from the dead, a return to truly being with you. Thank you that your words and your spirit brings life. Father, forgive us for the times when we've forgotten this. Not just as we seek to tell others the gospel, but in our own lives as well. Thank you that because your word and your spirit brings life, we know that you will work also in us through it. Enable us to continue to grow, we ask, in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these things for his glory. Amen. I'm going to end by singing a version of Psalm 62. My soul finds